You don't have to be a great singer or a musician, but you have to be anointed. Amen? Amen. That's what worship is all about. Well, we're going to continue this week into Romans chapter 5, which is really exciting. Uh, we're going to have some great verses there, if I'm not mistaken. Romans 5.8 is like just one of the top verses that you would share with somebody that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it talks about how we have this unwavering assurance in God's great love for us and his demonstration of that love. And so based on that assurance, we should have faith in him, right? And we should hope in him. And so it's by faith we are justified and our faith is in the hope that God will save us. So we have that in the first part. And then in the second part, uh, Romans, starting in verse 12, it talks about Adam and Christ, contrasting the two, how Adam's sin brings curses, death, disobedience, how Christ's obedience as the, as the second man, the, or the last Adam, um, he brings obedience and, and righteousness in life. So it's going to be a good Beautiful. study. I'm really looking forward to it. Are we ready? Amen. Let's, Let's go. welcome him up. A man Amen. Of God. Thank you, my brother. Good job. Way to stretch them in the school of spirit today. I appreciate that. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Just as Pastor Jared was summarizing from the passage, I want to summarize for what we've read up until this point. We've read that the condemnation of God is just upon all people, even the pagans who haven't had the law of Moses because they've had the law of their conscience and they've disobeyed. But the Jews are not any better because they themselves have also disobeyed, and even worse, because they had the covenant. And then in chapter 4, as we learned last week, that Paul teaches us that Abraham is the example of salvation by faith for both Jew and Gentile, and that was the plan all along. So let's now go to Romans chapter 5. And Jared, would you also make sure that you please charge up your phone? Just came to mind about that for us, our preaching today, that that would be ready. Thank you. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is the heart of the Reformation. That passage right there is what set Martin Luther on his rebellion, his course of rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church and towards true biblical salvation. We cannot underestimate the power of those two verses, and especially in verse 1 that says, since we have been looking back to the past justified through faith. We now have peace with God. And so in our Roman series, we give everybody a little bit of a rebuke and a correction. Today, the Roman Catholics get it right at the beginning. The Roman Catholics did not have an imputation of the righteousness of Christ at salvation. They did not believe in the judicial, the judicial decree of God upon mankind of their righteousness or right standing. They believed that it was progressive, that you were progressively being imputed those things over time by being a part of the Roman Catholic Church, coming to Mass, partaking of the sacraments, doing the other sacraments. There's about seven in the Roman Catholic Church. And that these were giving to you righteousness, but you never were fully declared righteous judicially. And so that's why penal substitutionary atonement 
became a core doctrine of the Reformation along with justification by faith. Substitutionary or penal substitutionary atonement is a judicial term and it's not foreign to the Bible. It's actually in the context of the Old Testament that they were judicially declared righteous by the sacrifice at Yom Kippur. During that time, once a year, they were right with their God. All sins were forgiven. Yet the Jewish people did not carry that into Jesus' time. They were looking for that impartation of righteousness by their works. And the Roman Catholics erred and sinned in the same way. So let us not overlook this scripture and take it lightly. This is the foundation of the protesting faith against Roman Catholicism, which, of course, was not ancient Christianity. Roman Catholicism developed over years. Don't let people say... It happened at 325, like the cults like to do. If you hear that, you've just met somebody who's basically put a big blinking sign in front of you saying, I know nothing about church history. The Council of Nicaea did not establish the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, as we know it today, probably didn't exist until the great schism with the Orthodox Church or the Church of the East. That's when it fully developed into what it would be known as throughout the Middle and Dark Ages. And as we've taught before, that they always kept increasing their doctrines, even up until the modern age in the 1950s with the assumption of Mary into heaven. So it's been an ever-evolving cult of Christianity. And I have a timeline of Roman Catholic doctrines that you can find on Disciples of the First Disciples, my book, okay? Disciples of the First Disciples, I believe it's .org. Jared, check it out, disciplesofthefirstdisciples.org or .com. It's an online book that I wrote. And you can look at how the church became dark. 325 was just a unifying of the church against an Arian heresy. People make that to be much more than what it ever was. So don't be distracted by it. Are you able to check that for me? I know I asked you to charge your phone, but would you go back there just so I can make sure the people online have it? We see that the justification is through faith. And so the reformers would use Latin because that was the language of the Roman Catholic Church, not even of the common folk anymore. People at this time in Rome and in Germany and in the other uh, parts of uh, the European countries there, Switzerland and all of that, they were speaking their own native languages. The Catholic Church kept reading the Bible out of Latin from the Latin Vulgate of Jerome's time, which I believe Jerome is around what, the 500s? 5th century 400s, okay? So they were doing that to keep the knowledge of the Bible away from the common man. They didn't want them reading the Bible. And so the Reformation used the Latin language to give us the primary solas of the Protestant movement, the protesting movement, sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone, sola de Cristo, for Jesus alone, sola de fideo, only by faith alone, soli uh, de um, grazie, by grace alone, and then soli what? What's the last one, my brother? Someone look it up, the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, how could I forget? Thank you. So we see that they use this to push back against the Roman Catholic cult belief 
that you are saved or justified judicially by doing good works. This Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther could not find peace with God. It tormented his soul that he was not right with God and his conscience was still seared. And the more works he did, the more evil he felt. Very similar to what we read about in Paul's description of Romans chapter 7. The things he didn't want to do, he kept doing. And so the way he described uh, his good works and all of these things was like a dunghill. And it just stunk. And the more he tried, the greater it became. But then Jesus justified him and then gave him a true reformation of heart. And so good works on top of a dunghill could just be like snow. And then once the snow melts, you go back to the dung. It may look good on the outside, but it's not transformative on the inside. And so what Paul is teaching us here, moving from the example of Abraham's salvation by faith, which was given to him in the Old Testament, It's not a New Testament concept. Even Habakkuk said, the just, the justified, those who are just in God's eyes shall live by faith. And so we'll learn what was the purpose of the law in the next chapter, but right now he's going to establish it and preach it and say, this is how you are justified. Justified, never sinned justified, never sinned. A great way to remember it. But it's more than just a forgiveness of sin. It is a judicial judgment by God the Father because of the death of Jesus. Your sins have been paid for and you're justified to go out of the courtroom and live your life. You're not going to have these sins brought up against you. The wrath of God is no longer upon you. And he once again puts it in the past tense. It's from Romans 1.18, the gospel, the power of God, the salvation message for Jew and Gentile. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, irene, With God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we are without enmity with God now. We are no longer God's enemies, through whom, talking about Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So I don't need to go to Father Tom to be imparted more righteousness or to be justified. I don't need to partake in more sacraments to stand at peace with God. I am now at peace with God. Why? Because I am in Christ. As the revelation will be drawn out more in the book of Ephesians, he's saying that it's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we literally come into Christ and then the Father through Christ, which then comes into us, comes through Christ to us, the grace and mercy that he gives. And it says we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And what is the hope beyond the scope of human limitation? The hope is that one day our bodies will be redeemed just like our spiritual souls have been redeemed and the earth will be redeemed and we will rule and reign with Christ. 
Not only so, not only do we boast in the hope coming to us, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering, now watch this, and make a diagram. As a matter of fact, Will, get me the, note, uh, uh, the, the chalkboard today or the, the blackboard, whiteboard. Thank you. Because I want you to write this in your notes. Sufferings equals perseverance, character. Would you scroll up for me, good sir, please? Character and hope. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Would you help him up here, Jared? It seems to be complicated for him. Thank you. When you notice this chain of events, you don't get them unless you start with suffering. This does not mean that God takes pleasure in our suffering. Thank you, my brother. But what it does mean is that suffering, this needs to be adjusted. Thank you. Would you please help him? Thank you. It means that suffering has a purpose. Another way of saying it is, my pain has a purpose. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What was one of the curses that came upon the earth? Thorns and thistles, things that would cause you pain. The natural order would no longer be paradise. What about the woman in childbirth? She would suffer pain. All that we see coming from the curse, we could say is death. But what comes before death? Pain and suffering. So we as Christians, though we have been redeemed, though we have been transformed, is that crooked to you? It looks crooked to me. Yeah, would you guys please continue to fix it? Thank you. All that we see is that pain equals death. Everything related to pain is because of death. And now that we are Christians, are we excluded from pain? Are we excluded from death? No, we're, we've been saved, we've been changed, but we're still going to suffer. We're still going to have pain. Now, what kind of suffering predominantly is Paul always referring to when he talks about the suffering of a Christian? Is it illness? Is it rejection, emotional? Most of the time, what he is talking about when he's talking about sufferings is he is talking about persecution. But we can take it and put it into all things. Does that look better to you guys? Thank you. Appreciate that. So write down sufferings, if you haven't already, and I'll just abbreviate because it will take me too long to write. As, as in sufferings, produces what? Perseverance. And then draw an arrow. Perseverance leads to what? Go and throw that away for me, please, Jared. Thank you. What does perseverance lead to? Character. Thank you. Let's redo this so everybody can see it. Sufferings equal perseverance. Perseverance give us what? Character then gives us what? Hope, and is there one more that we should put there? 
Yes, because hope, right here, you could say equals never disappointed. So if I never want to be disappointed, I have to understand in my suffering, I have to let God make me persevere so he can develop character in me so that I can have real hope, not a wish, not wishful thinking, not tossing a quarter into the fountain in Disney World, asking upon a star, wishing upon a star. No, this kind of hope that never disappoints is made in the fire of affliction. It's like metal being formed. And so there are things that God now has determined to use suffering for his glory. It wasn't his first choice or his intention to hurt us. But now because we have sinned against him and pain is a part of death and the wages of sin is death, he will now use the pain of death to do something good in our lives. And that's why where it says in Isaiah, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. But notice there's still a weapon that's coming against you. So it's not that you get out of weapons coming against you. It's just that weapons in the hands of the enemy won't prosper for their intention because God will use that weapon even though it's been thwarted or used by the enemy. He will thwart it for his purpose so it brings about his intention, which is perseverance, never giving up, becoming strong in the faith, character, reflecting who Jesus is, and having hope beyond the scope of what this earth is. Like C.S. Lewis says, in joy of life and temporal pleasures, not the joy of the Lord, but in temporal pleasures, temporal joy, money, sex, family, accomplishments, education, notoriety, all of those things, you can barely hear the voice of God. Because your soul is so overwhelmed with its idol worship. You don't see the thorns as bad on payday. You don't feel the pains of earth when you're drinking to get drunk. You're numb to what's going on around you when you're in an illicit affair, letting your adrenaline be released and having sex, you know, promiscuity in promiscuity. But C.S. Lewis said, in pain, God's voice is like one who shouts. See, why is it in temporal pleasure? It's like a whisper. We can barely hear God on, at Mardi Gras. They can barely hear the Lord speaking to them. But yet at the funeral, yet at the cancer, the bed of cancer, yet at the fifth breakup, yet at the clinic, Getting checked for sexual transmitted diseases, God's voice is so much louder. It's because God has purposed us in suffering to be reminded this is not our home. And temporary pleasures are deceiving. Now then C.S. Lewis went on to say, they can show us one thing. In their dissatisfaction, we must have been made for more. 
Because we are seeking joy in the bottle, joy in the relationship, joy in the education. We must be made for joy. So when we see it go away in the bucket of our joy container always leaking out, has a hole in it, we should then see that our complete joy can only happen in Christ. So if you're in a place of suffering and you're in a place of great pain, think not lowly of your place with God, but think of yourself having the greatest opportunities to develop these things in your life. Maybe God has chosen you for such a path so that you can know him like those uh, greater than those who do not have this kind of suffering. And especially when it comes to the suffering of persecution, I would say they have perseverance and character and hope much more well developed in their life than we do here. And so what an honor it is to suffer and then the Bible says, now you can rejoice. Not just in the temporary suffering, but you rejoice in the eternal God who's working his plan in and through your life. Why does it come there in the passage about faith? Why are we now told that this is a part of salvation? It's because he doesn't want us to think that salvation is a promise of earthly prosperity and it's always going to go your way. He's wanting to prepare the Romans for eventually what will behead him. The persecution of Rome and the persecution will last for hundreds of years. And Christians will be impaled on stakes like telephone poles and have oil poured over them and lit on fire so that the term Roman candle will be known as a torture device and Christians will be used to light the streets of Rome. He's preparing them to know that in your sufferings, God is doing something. He's given you perseverance. He's given you character and he's given you hope. And that hope never disappoints. You'll never be put to shame. And so I want to say this before I move on past this passage. When we go through our sufferings and we're hoping for a better day, hoping for healing, hoping the nation gets saved so that China doesn't have to suffer persecution and we see people die or we might even die in the midst of that hope, and someone might come along and mock us and say, ah, ha, 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 you prayed that China would change, but it didn't change. It, you know, those people are dying over there. You prayed for your aunt, and she prayed that she would get healed, and she died. It never came to pass. Your God is not real. Paul is reminding us we'll never be put to shame because as the sick Christian dies, as I've told you before, saying, I am healed, I am healed, I am healed, and they take their next breath, uh, their last breath, and the next moment during eternity, Jesus looks at them and says, yes, you are healed. They're never put to shame. And as the person is dying for their faith, my God is king of all, my God is king of all, and then the, the knife cuts off their head, the blade goes down, he is king of all, he is king of all. The next moment they're in his presence and he says, yes, I am king of all. And then they start crying out, how long until you avenge our blood? And the time will come where the blood is avenged so they will never be put to shame.
Amen. Let's continue on. The Bible says in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. Oh, no, I, uh, yes. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a good person. Someone might possibly dare to die. Let me read this again, because I was trying to track you, and I was a little bit out of place. I apologize. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So at just the right time, Christ comes into human history. And we as humanity, we're powerless. And Christ is not dying for the good person. He's dying for the ungodly. He then uses the example to say, maybe someone in your world, in your life, might die as a hero for their country or for other good people. But who dies for the child molester? Who dies for the mass murderer? Who says, I'll take Hitler's place because I love him so much? And yet the Bible says, Jesus does that for us because God the Father, and we know as we've talked before about the Trinity in the Scriptures, that when God is used by Paul, just as the term God, Theos, it means the Father, and it's contrasted towards the Son. We know there's one God, the Father, Son, the Spirit, but Paul generally recognizes the Father as God and Jesus as Lord. And so God the Father demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ the Son died for us. Or Christ God the Son died for us. God the Father demonstrates through the God the Son's death. Isn't that beautiful? That it's not for the righteous Christ died for. It's for sinners. And so the demonstration of our God's love is the cross. And that's why we uphold the cross. We don't worship it. It's not an idol, but we lift up the cross, and we set our eyes upon the cross, and we carry the cross to others. And to some, it's the smell of death because they only look at it as what it is in the, in the worldly carnal mindset as a place of death and shame and pain. But to others, it's the smell of life and rebirth because they see it as a place to be forgiven, as a place to start new and afresh, not by their works, but by the faith in, in God. And, and not in their good works, but in faith in the good work of Christ. Now look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Remember that term, God's wrath. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Because he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And the resurrection means new life for us. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been rec- through whom we now have received reconciliation. And just a lesson on the Trinity. If God is the Father, and the Jehovah Witness wants to say, then that means Jesus cannot be God, then that means the Father cannot be Yahweh. 
Because whenever Jesus is referred to as Lord, that is not for master's sake or for sir, sir Jesus. And that's a, you know, like Lord, you know, Smith in, in Europe or, or a duke that they would have those titles. No, Lord, according to Paul, as we'll get to in Romans chapter 10, is Yahweh. So he's always saying, Theos, Elohim, the Father. Theos is Greek, Elohim is Hebrew, the Father. And then Yahweh, Kyrios, the Son. Does everybody see that? Do you understand that? Okay, because there's no contradiction. If God is the Father, that does not mean Jesus is not also God. Because remember, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Jehovah Witnesses and others like that always say that Jehovah is Lord and and the Father is Lord and he's the only one that's Lord. But continually, Paul is referring to Jesus as Lord. And how do we know that? From the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, thy Elohim. He is Ahad. And so what Paul did is he takes the term Elohim, God, the Lord, your God, and applies God to the Father and Yahweh to the Son. Did you want to add anything to that or do you think I've said it? Thank you. Then it says here that we have reconciliation. If we're not reconciled in the terms of war and peace, we are still God's enemies under God's wrath. So by default, what is humanity under? The wrath of God or the peace and reconciliation? The wrath. So under the terms of the war, the war that humanity started, when they took the side of the traitor, the fallen angel in the garden, man by default became under the wrath of God, God's enemy. But now because of Jesus, the perfect God-man, him setting the example for mankind and redeeming mankind, now we are on peaceful terms with the Father. Has his wrath gone away? Has angry, meanie God of the Old Testament gone away? No, it's the same God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that was interacting with humanity then is interacting with humanity now. Why is there the possibility of a truce between fallen, wicked humanity and a holy, wrathful God? Because Jesus, by his blood, by his blood, reconciled us. And then through his life, gave us another chance to be born again. The death, burial, and resurrection symbolized in the baptism, which we'll get here to in a moment. The baptism doesn't save you, but it represents the process of salvation that happens instantaneously. You go from death to burial to life. That's why we're now at peace with our God. Those who are not in Christ They're still at war with our God, aren't they? In God's wrath, as we've already learned in Romans chapter 1, I'm seeing some blank stares, so let's go back. Romans chapter 1, Jackie, please open your Bible and read it out loud for us. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Yes. But it's good to have your Bible open too, right? Why don't you read out of your Bible just so you'll feel more comfortable using your software? Okay, well, we'll wait for you. That's okay. 
Part of coming to chapel is having a Bible. Amen? Would you get me some water, Jared? Thank you. We apologize for those who are waiting for her to get the Bible, but let's be patient and help teach our sister. Amen? We love her. We want the best for her. The karaoke screen is for our benefit to study the scriptures together, but not for you not to have the scriptures in front of you. I actually had a water back there, brother. Thank you. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. When you learn to work the word, the word will work for you. Amen? Amen. Go ahead. Amen. Would you read it like a preacher on the streets right now? Because I want to interact with that scripture. Start again, please. Thank you, Jared. About five times louder than that, please. There you go. So the wrath of God was revealed. And when I interact, that means you stop. Start again. The wrath of God was revealed. I'm working with Jackie. Let's teach her how to do it. The wrath of God was revealed. Louder. The wrath of God was revealed. The wrath of God was revealed. Is being revealed. From a meanie God. From where? Against just the bad people that we see here? Where? All. Against where? Against where? All the what? Who do what? What are they doing? What are they doing? There you go. A little bit louder and you'll do better next time. Do you understand how to interact with the word when you're preaching on the streets? You have to do that. When we're on the streets, it's not always easy to have the scriptures being read ourselves and to preach. If you notice a lot of our apologetic people like Sam Shimon and others, and in the African-American church, this has been popularized now by the black Hebrew Israelites, we have to learn to help each other while we're preaching the scriptures. It is a good tactic. They did not develop it, the cults. The Christians have been interacting with scriptures like this for a very long time, long before the cults were ever around. Public reading of the scripture by one person and then another person enunciating it and teaching it even goes back to the time of the Jews. So remember how to do that and do it with boldness and passion and let us practice here to do that. Amen? The point that's being made here is that if you are not at peace with God, the wrath of God is still against you. Romans chapter 5 is not going to contradict Romans chapter 1. As I've taught you before, these letters were meant to be read in one sitting, oftentimes continually as they met together. So you might hear this read every single day you went to church. It only takes, if you're a good reader at normal uh, speed, it only takes about a half hour. We're so used to wasting time on Facebook, we need to put our face in God's book. If I took away all these distractions from you, you would have plenty of time to read this out loud in a Bible study and read it out loud to each other at at, at your hangout times. Not a problem. So I want you to remember that because in a few moments, I'm going to come back to you with the cult of universalism. And I want to see, Jackie, if you remember what you read. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. 
We now have been justified. We now have been reconciled. We're no longer the enemies of God, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Remember that. Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now we learn about headship. Adam made us all sinners, and Jesus makes us righteous. Let's keep going. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, who is the one man? Adam. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. Who's the one man? Sin. Who's the one man? Adam. Thank you. I'm going to say it again. Who's the one man? Adam. Thank you. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, who's the one man? Adam, thank you. Death reigned through that one man, who's the one man? Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let's keep going with this thought. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for how many people? All people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for how many people? All people. Y'all ready to debate a universalist? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, who's the one man? Adam, the many were made righteous. So also through the obedience of the one man, who's that one man? Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jackie, how many people became sinners under the one man, Adam? How many become righteous in the one man, Jesus? No, it's not what it says. It's not what it says. Go to the verse 19. Now remember if this was happening in public and you've got the camera on you and the universalist has got you stumbling now. She just contradicted herself, didn't she? I love you, but I'm gonna work you through it so that we learn here and for the sake of those watching. How many became unrighteous according to verse 19? How many become righteous according to verse 19? says all. Now it says many in verse 19, but let's go back up to verse 18 so we can actually say the word all. How many people get the condemnation according to verse 18, Jackie? How many get the justification in life according to verse 18? All. Just as many were made sinners, let's define what many is. How many sinners were made because of Adam? All. How many are made righteous because of Jesus? Paul's not going to contradict himself in the term many, is he? 
Why are people still going to hell, Jackie, and why you keep teaching that? Because there's no longer a law. Jesus took the law. He fulfilled the law. Remember that phrase I told you to remember? It says, even over those who did not sin, or, or excuse me, where it says, uh, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Jesus fulfilled the law. There is no more the law of Moses, right? Are you sacrificing animals? Are you uh, going to the town? Okay, so there's no more law. And so all the law did was show us how sinful we are. All that's, that's all that it did. And now the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. So we all used to be sinners like Adam. Now we're all righteous like Jesus. Prove it wrong, Jackie. Mm, you remembered. It's a verse, but I'm glad you remember. You got to explain it now. What happened in Romans 18? Well, let's go to Romans 18. That's 118. Okay, so I told you to go there. You read it. We interacted with it. But make a point from it. Don't just think that pastor now is just going to accept the answer. Well, Romans 118. Okay, but what about Romans 118? Okay, so why would he bring it up? Well, because he's saying, let's use the argument because I want to make you do it a little bit more clear. Let's say the person responds back to you because he's just, Paul, describing how bad mankind is, but he's getting to the good news, Jackie, and the good news is really we're all righteous. You're so close. No, 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 no. No, yeah, you're, I, you could try. I mean, go ahead and try. I've set you up for success. Basically, like in T-ball, I've put it here, and you're saying, can I go to the pitching where it's 90 miles an hour? For, of course, yes. Go wherever you want in the scriptures now, uh, but it's not going to help you. And if you leave the book of Romans, you've just made yourself uh, come, you know, you made yourself look foolish because you can't show it in the book that you're actually trying to defend. So go ahead. Yeah. So you are keeping in the scripture then? Okay. Okay. Very good. Now go back to Romans chapter 5 and show me that. Show me what you just said in Romans 5. If what your interpretation of Romans 1.18 is true, if Paul is being consistent, that wrath is still being revealed, and therefore we're not out at all at peace with God, and the only way we receive peace with God is by receiving Jesus, it must be somewhere in that context we just read. It must be there, Oscar. Who can find it? Read it out loud. What point have you proved except theirs? You have, I'm giving you a chance. What point have you proved except theirs? Yeah. You've only proved their point. Does everybody see he's only proved their point? He's, he's only reiterated the point. 
That the many are made wicked through Adam, the many are made righteous through Jesus. I was giving you a chance to share it. Go ahead, Lawrence. Verse 17, take your time. Let's read it. I want everybody to see it. Don't let me be your judge. Let the scriptures be your judge. Read it out loud now, please. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive... Whoa! God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Amen. And just for those that get from the podcast, this mic, let me read it. Lawrence nailed it. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It's right there. Now, why does he talk about the alls? Because now the universalists and the Calvinists fail together. They both teach that it's God who determines who the all is. Calvinists believe there's a limited all, that the atonement and the blood that was shed was only for the ones God elected and predestined to save. So it's not for the whole world, And those he's elected to save will not resist. It will be irresistible grace. And they give the universalists such a hard time because they say it's so anti-Reformation and the doctrines of, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith and so forth. And yet they don't understand they fail exactly like the universalists. Though the universalists, after failing in this, has multiple other failings. So I believe the universalist becomes a heretic because of the consequence of how they fail here and what proceeds after that in their worldview, but yet the Calvinists and the the Universalists share the same failing, which is the Calvinist says God picks, but he only picks a few. The Universalist says God picks, just like the Calvinists, and he picks all. It's still God picking. But is that the context of Romans? is the context of Romans, all wrath is gone, God has already picked you, you're on the winning side. No, the wrath wrath of God is being revealed through the book of Romans in chapter one by the ungodliness of people. Cross has already happened. Peace should have already come to them. They're resisting and they're going to receive the wrath of God on judgment. We'll get to some of those passages in just a little bit. And the Jews are under the wrath of God too because they're not being obedient to what Christ has taught in the Old Testament, salvation by grace through faith. And so both of them are in trouble right now. And Paul's going to get to the point moving forward by saying they're lost, but I haven't given up on them. But man, if they don't get saved, they will be cursed and remain cursed. And he starts talking in Romans chapter 10 about they're cut off. And we know what happens to cut off branches get thrown into the fire. And the Gentiles are getting grafted in by faith. But then he says, don't you think you're so sure that you're going to always stay here? Because as they got cut out by unbelief and you were grafted in by faith, you can be cut out by unbelief and they can come back in if they stop being in unbelief and start believing. Does everybody get it? So he says, hey, you better take this serious. So the Calvinist and the Universalist are actually strange bedfellows because both of them are laying in the same bed 
of God chooses. Here's the bed, God chooses. And on one side of the bed is the Calvinist sleeping over here saying God only chooses a few. And then over here is the Universalist saying God chooses all. We're not in that bed. So guess what we get to do? We get to say absolutely, just like everybody was made wicked in Adam, everybody was made righteous in Christ. But you have to receive it. Provision for all has been made. We're like the universalist there. Provision for all has been made. But we're not like them where it says, all receive it. We're like the Calvinists that say only a few receive it. But what makes the determination whether you receive it or you don't? Your choice. That's what we're going to learn now in Romans 6 and onward, that what you put your mind on, what you set your heart on, that will be your slave master because you're going to be a servant of either God and his righteousness or of the flesh and of sin. And it's your choice, just like it was Abraham's faith and credited to him. But did Abraham generate his own faith? No, it was given to him as a gift. Just like I didn't generate my own life, and life is given to me as a gift, it's my choice what I do with my life. And faith is given to us, as we'll hear in Romans 10, by hearing of the word, and it's up to us what we do with it. And as we've read before, like in Hebrews, we can resist it and become hardened over time. The Calvinist wants to say we're all equally hard the same way, until God turns on the light switch and chooses us and irresistibly draws us to salvation. Well, what would be the sense of all these warnings of apostasy, all these warnings of shipwrecking your faith, and all these warnings of turning your back on God, all these warnings of hardening your heart? Those are actual warnings, not potential, not theoretical, actual warnings that if we as Christians do not continue hearing and listening, we can become in continual sin and by continual sin have our heart be hardened. It's not sin in of itself that will cut us, away, cut us out of God's presence because we can be forgiven of our sins. It's the hardening of our heart in our sin that turns us away from God as we've read in Hebrews chapter three. It's the hardening of the heart through sin. And so when we see this, we get two false doctrines knocked down for the price of one. All we had to do was just read the scripture in its context and let it speak to us. Isn't that beautiful? And as we get to Romans chapter 6, they're going to try to say, the Calvinists will say, well, is, is having faith a good thing that you do in your life? Yes. Well, the Bible says that the heart set on the flesh cannot submit to God. How could you ever do it in the flesh? You have to be regenerated first before you can submit to God and ask to be regenerated. In other words, God has to save you before you can ask to be saved. And we'll say to them, no, you're not reading that scripture right either. What it's saying is the carnal mind in and of itself is always death. But where did I say the faith, the ability to trust God came from? Did I say it came from the origin of my flesh? No. 
It came from God's Spirit via the Word of God. Is there an example of that, a parable of that? Yes, there's actually a parable where Jesus said, the word of God is like seed and the preacher's throwing it out. And it's the hearts that make the determination of what happens to that word. But all of them have the potential to be the best kind of heart if they were to receive the word. The one that has the hardest heart and has the devil come and eat it is the one that did not understand it or perceive it or take it. So because of our own stubbornness and rebellion, we will be judged by not receiving the word. Not because God's word returned void or because God said we would be damned from the, uh, doomed from the womb. It's because We didn't hearken his voice. We didn't open our heart to receive. And we can do that. We don't make our heart pure. It's just we receive the word and the word purifies us, washes us, us, as the Bible says, and cleanses us. Amen? So in summary of chapter five, thank you, Jackie, and for those who participated. Oscar, I appreciate your effort. We see that Romans chapter 5 concludes verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3, uh, 1 through 4, and now sets us up for 6 and onward. So 6 starts with, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because you can hear that as an argument now, that if righteousness has already been obtained through Christ, then it must not matter what I do because all sins are already forgiven. That's obvious. All sins are forgiven. Jesus is not dying again. So then why don't I just live in sin then? Because I believe in Jesus. And so now he's going to start teaching us how not to live by that mindset, that carnal mind, but to live by the mind of the Spirit. And Christian living is not now part us, part God. It was salvation by faith, sanctification by faith, spiritual growth, and it's going to be spiritual growth by faith. Every good thing we do from start to finish in Christianity is always going to be by faith. So it's not like we're going to get to Romans 12, that famous passage of being renewed in our mind and laying down our life as a living sacrifice and say, look what I did because I'm so disciplined. No, it's, it's because I was saved and purified and justified and reconciled and empowered by the Spirit that now I can, by faith, be obedient to renewing my mind and not thinking on the things of the flesh, but thinking on the things of the Spirit. And I can have the Spirit give me self-discipline, a sound mind and power and love and all those wonderful things. As we're going to learn that it's really the Spirit, because it's like, where's the Spirit been in all of this, right? He's not been mentioned too much, but the Holy Spirit's about ready to come into the book of Romans, and we're going to learn that we don't have the Spirit of this world. We don't have the Spirit of fear anymore. We have the Spirit of adoption, and the Spirit of adoption is compelling us to call out to God for all those things that we need. And watch this for all of my Pentecostal friends. And even when we don't have the words, the Holy Spirit will groan through us, which is a form of speaking in tongues. Not quite the same thing, but it's similar enough that we can put it in that category, maybe as a subcategory. Because it's not necessarily a language. It's more of just groaning in your emotions as the Spirit groans through you. 
very similar to how you would speak a language, language of angels as you would speak in tongues. This is a beautiful book. And we are to take it very serious, and we are to learn how to preach it, but first we have to apply it. So let's go back through it. Number one, do we believe that we've been justified through faith? Like, do you believe judicially you're right with God? Because don't get on the good work treadmill, even in Bible college. Don't think if you fast more, you're going to be justified more. You're going to be more righteous. Don't think if you have a bad day in school or, or you don't do well witnessing, that somehow you're less than, you're outside of God's love, you're outside of God's plan. Apply this to your life and say, I stand in God's grace now. Go back, please, so they can just see it in verse um, verse 2. You stand by faith in this grace now. You're standing in it. You're not trying to get to it. You're standing in it. You are in Christ today. And then are you suffering? Are you being persecuted? Or are you physically experiencing pain or emotionally going through things in this life? Seek God and his kingdom so that you might persevere, have character and hope, because that will never disappoint you. And, and I know we in Christianity, want to do great things for God. And I know we want to have big, big expectations. But let me ask you something, even to myself. Is the 100,000 your happiness, 100,000 disciples of church, or is your hope in Jesus the person? See, I want to do all those amazing things, but first and foremost, my hope is in Jesus. And remember verse 8, memorize verse 8, that you weren't saved by good works. God demonstrated his love for you while you were a sinner. And so if he did that for you, how much more so now is he pouring out a spirit upon you as you're, as you're a son or a daughter? And then when it comes to the one man, Adam, versus the one man, Christ, just remember you're in the one man, Jesus, now. Amen? So the son of man, became, uh, the son of God became the son of man so that sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. There's only two Adams you're under, the first one or the second one. Come under the second one. Receive new life. Receive all that he has to give you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you today for an exciting chapel. Thank you for the time that we shared together in Romans chapter 5. I pray that all the things that we've heard from your word will sink into our hearts like good seed, that we won't harden our hearts, that we'll receive these things, and that they will grow, or these, these truths will grow in our lives, bring spiritual fruit, and that, Lord, whenever we find ourselves in suffering or in pain or in turmoil, that we will trust you and that we'll see you develop in us perseverance, character, and hope. We just love you so much. Bless each one of us as we go about our day, and especially the students as they continue to learn. In Jesus' name, amen.